Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. It is more commonplace in story than in life that loved ones are witness to dying words that carry meaning or forgiveness. So it was with me, for though I heard my mother's words, they served only to confound and injure. I am like Anna, she had said. I have failed Juliana. But I knew no Juliana, nor an Anna who had disappointed. I knew only that my mother had left me and would not now explain. In my profession, I interpret others' words within boundaries prescribed by a meticulous author. That world is less than real, but there is no dire consequence for turning down a wrong path of understanding. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Rebecca DeHarling, author of The Lines Between Us. In this novel, Juliana, a sheltered young Spanish woman, journals about the cunning and lies it took to escape an unforgiving father and survive harsh 17th century notions of purity and honor. Centuries later, Rachel, a professor of Spanish, starts packing up the house of her mother, who died suddenly after a car accident. Rachel starts packing up her mother's house and finds a packet containing the diaries of Juliana along with letters from descendants. These letters form a chain of women who now possess a secret that no longer has the power to destroy. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thanks for having me. So how did finding a trove of your own family's documents inspire you to write this novel? And what are the similarities between what really happened and the novel? Well, actually, very few similarities, and it wasn't really a trove. Um, What I found was just something that my sister and I had never known about our mother. And by the time we found it, she was already, she was still with us, but she was very close to the end of her life, and we felt like we didn't want to ask her at that point. It was kind of like if she hadn't told us, she must not have wanted us to know. So we didn't want to tell her that we had discovered it. And that was really all it was. It was nothing super exciting and, you know, a trove of amazing documents like like Rachel finds in the novel. That was just from oh, my imagination. Darn. Maybe a desire to a desire to find that, but yeah, yeah. Mm. But it would have been cool. So convents, <laughs> right? Convents play a big role in the story. And I only know about convents from literature. But as one of your character muses, they were a refuge for unmarried women and widows. It, it seems like a wonderful solution. Are, are there, so like, could we talk about that a little? Sure, yes. And that it was quite common at that time, not just in Spain, but um, in other countries also, that if, you know, a woman 
couldn't find a husband, which in those days was, you know, there's that was a bad thing. Um, then a convent was a viable and desirable choice. And also after um, one's husband died, that was also something women sometimes did. And this would be um, a refuge for all all classes of women. Um, if you were poor, it was a place that you could go and yet you might have to work harder. Um, and if you were better off uh, financially, then you could, as in the novel uh, says, some of the some of the women even would have a servant there. But it was a safe place to be, a socially acceptable place to be. So yeah, that um, that happened with some frequency for centuries throughout Europe. Mm. Can you describe the research that you did to write the book? Yes. Um, I, I got the idea first. I don't know why, but it came to me um, about a, a young woman in Spain in the 17th century. During that time, um, the 17th century is called the Golden Age in Spain because of the literature and there was a group of plays um, that we call honor plays in which the, a, a man's honor is paramount at that time in, this, in that society. And if something happened to um, his wife or daughter or if, if she did something or even if she was violated, that stained his honor and he had to do something about it. And in the plays, sometimes that thing is he says he's going to kill her. So I thought, what an interesting idea for a novel. And what might a young woman do who is in that position? What would her very limited alternatives be? So in, in that sense, I since I studied Spanish literature in grad school, I, I knew a lot, a fair amount about the Spanish literature at the time. And then it was just a matter of, uh, you know, what, what historical fiction writers do. I, you know, found books that were about the period. Um, and I, I also knew so, something, of course, of, of Mexico City at the time. And uh, I did put in a real, a real person there, um, one of the, the nuns that, that my character corresponds with, um, Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz, was, was a real person. So I kind of knew something about her. She, she wrote philosophy and poetry, and she was quite amazing at the time. Um, so I started my research in the 90s, when, which, of course, was pre-internet. And I, um, I was so lucky to found a, find a wonderful book that said Daily Life in Golden Age Spain or something like that. So that helped a lot. And then, and then of course, you find a treasure like that, and then references lead you to other things. Well, then I lost confidence and put my writing away for, you know, 25 years or so, picked it up again, and now we have the internet. So... Uh, you kind of feel like, do I have to recheck everything? Um, but, but it was very helpful um, for finding things like um, what would what would have been a route that someone would have taken from from Mexico City to Santa Fe, and and that kind of thing. So a lot of that then was, I mean, still books, but um, also a lot of uh, internet searches. Hmm. So the book opens with Anna reading. Emilio, her dead husband's journal. How does what she learned change her? I think that um, she is surprised that he had kept, not, not just that he had kept this secret journal that she never knew anything about, 
but a very strong thing in the journal is that he had always wanted to go to the new world to just see what it was like. He was a physician and maybe there would be, he would like to go and learn what, well, what did the native peoples do there? And he wanted to go because he knew that things were disappearing and peoples were disappearing. And he had some conflicted feelings at one point he says, well, you know, would, would I be adding to the evil that, that my countrymen are doing <laughs> by going there, but decides that no, because he has good intentions that that would be all right, but he never is able to go because he does um, meet and fall in love with Anna. And then there's timing issues and he can't, he tries to get his place on a ship and then someone else takes his place and then Anna gets pregnant. So he never gets to go. And Anna feels guilty a, a bit about this because she knows that it's because of her that he didn't fulfill that dream that he had had for many years. At the same time, she also feels relieved because she knows that she would not have wanted him to go. She would not have wanted him to, to go and leave her, nor would she have wanted him to, to take her with her. So her feelings about Emilio, I think, become more complex and perhaps even a, a deeper appreciation and love for him because he sacrificed this for her and, and even maybe more importantly, never told her that he had done that. She also learns that he was kind of modern in his thinking, mm -hmm. like teaching her about medicine and the whole instituting the practice of men and women dining together. How yes. avant-garde. How avant-garde yes. was that at the time? <laughs> it definitely was. And even having chairs rather than at the time, women uh, would sit in a separate room and often sit sort of on these very low very low benches or even cushions on the floor, which that, that was something that surprised me in my research. I hadn't known about that. So yes, he is, he's a little different. I like to have characters who don't fit all of the stereotypes that one thinks of in that historical period, because people are still individuals and will have some thoughts of their own. Mm -hmm. How would you describe Anna's relationship with her brother, Sebastian? Well, again, that's that's a difficult relationship. I think they they grew up um, close to each other. It says that uh, he he was disappointed when she had told her father that she wanted to to enter the convent, and they were very close. He and of course, then when she came out of the convent, um, she was close to her sister in law, Sebastian's husband, um, and then of course, Sebastian does something that is. Uh, pretty awful, which I won't say because it doesn't, the reader doesn't find out till almost the end of the novel, but um, be because of her own loneliness, especially after Emilio dies, she has to put that behind her. And also because um, she has this nephew, Juliana, who, who now as, as the novel opens the, her, her, uh, sorry, her niece, her niece, Juliana is 16. And, She's very close to Juliana, never had a child of her own. So again, she is willing to overlook what, what Sebastian had done those six, 15 years ago um, because she, she does still love him and she, and she dearly loves her niece and 
And they are sort of a guard for her against loneliness, especially after her husband dies. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's the specter of the Inquisition hovers, how is it that nobody even looking back at it from across the ocean or from the future, how is it that nobody has anything to say about the Inquisition? Um, I'm sorry, who who doesn't say anything about it? Uh, none of the, the characters. Nobody um, expresses shock by what they learn, what happened, and how the Inquisition... I'm wondering about that and how that fit into your research and mm-hmm. say more okay. about it. Uh-huh. Okay, so um, th- there... The characters do occasionally talk about the Inquisition. They'll say something and then think, oh, what would the Inquisition say if they knew I'd said that or even that I thought that? And then when we find out about what had happened to the Inquisition, yes, I see what you're saying. Um, I, I, I have to be frank. I didn't think of, of saying like putting in the letters and things. Mm, um, I, okay. didn't, I didn't think of it. I didn't think of putting in their reaction to that specific part of the history. Okay, your next book. So, um, can you say more about Juliana's thoughts when she, as she uh, moves on in her life and adopts new responsibilities and looks back on her past? Mm -hmm. I think that Juliana, from the start, of course, her choices have always been limited, very limited, as were the choices of all people, all, all women, particularly at that time, um, particularly in Spain. And so she is, she's landed on this choice of going to the convent. At least it's something that she chose, um, given the circumstances that she found herself in. And as she goes through her years in the convent, I think it's, it's, it's not an easy time for her. She's not used to just living with a bunch of women. She, th- there's the, the desire to be closer with her daughter, who's in the convent with her, but it's, of course, a secret that that's her daughter. So it's, it's very conflicted feelings and looks for some kind of recognition from the daughter. But, of course, there is none because she has no idea that Juliana is her mother. Um, there are periods while she's in the convent when she experiences what we would now call depression. Of course, at that time, they didn't really have, you know, they might have called it black humors or something. And um, she she has those experiences off and on. And um, the, one, the one thing that seems to sort of save her overall and get her through those years is, is learning. And she's delighted to find that the mother superior of the convent when she first enters is a woman who's interested in learning and fosters that and finds in Juliana sort of a, um, a a close relationship because they both have that interest. So that's, so, so she gets through these difficult years um, the best that she can with her love for her daughter and knowing that she at least is in the same vicinity as her daughter and that her daughter is safe and that learning is going to help her. And then as she becomes a mother superior and has somewhat more contact with the outside world, I think that also um, helps her. 
she's a remarkable character. I really, I really loved her. But let's jump ahead to the 20th century, to the、uh-huh. end of the 20th century,、uh-huh. and talk about Rachel, who's also another really cool lady.、Um, she's grieving her mother's death. What do you love about about Rachel? Um, I, I, I think that Rachel is. Very, she's she's also conflicted because she she loves her mother, although her mother was always sort of a reserved person. But she nevertheless really loved her and felt very close to her. Rachel's an only child, and she and and Rachel's father died when she was、um, a teenager. So she's she's even closer to her mother because of that, probably. But when she finds this. Treasure trove of these papers. She is angry because her mother has never told her about these papers, and the only hint she had was on her mother's deathbed when she says, "I'm like Anna. I have failed Juliana." And of course, Rachel had never heard of this, so she's curious. She's she is an academic, so she tries to take it at first on a you know try. Keep objective and see this as, you know, is this real? Is this authentic? And is, and then hopefully hoping that it is somehow connected to her by not just by the fact that her mother mentioned the characters, but also、um, by the fact that she's wondering if she's related to to Juliana by blood.、Mm-hmm. Why does she feel? Rachel feel like she needs to lie to her husband and son when she goes to New Mexico to explore the papers she found, the the treasure trove of, of papers that she found after her mother died. I, I think she's still in a very、um, sensitive place emotionally after the death of her mother, and then finding this, and somehow she wants to keep that to herself. And somehow feels that if she shares it, it's going to somehow, I think, dilute the power of it. And it's something very personal to her. She doesn't want to tell anyone else about it. She doesn't want anyone else to try to help her solve the problem. She is is hers to find and hers to understand and hers to explore. So I think that's why, and and then you know she doesn't tell him right away. I mean, I, I think I don't know. I certainly have. I think a lot of people have had the experience of you begin by not telling someone you love something, and then the longer you don't tell them, the harder it is to tell them. I think there's a little bit of that going on too. <laughs> Um, another big phenomenon in your book is the preservation of a secret. Yes. <laughs> can can we talk a little bit about that? Like, what makes one part of a family or one person hold a secret and another person say, "Too bad." Yeah.、Uh, yes. I'm not going to. <laughs> yes, I think you know. I so. Yes, a, lo- a lot of people, including my own daughter, is like, "Well, why did those other ones keep that secret, Mom?" Yeah, I want to know that too. <laughs> and, I, and and my answer is this:、um, remember that these people all took an oath, which it you know for centuries was a very serious thing, and 
even though by the time, and, and there were only six of them, you know, even though it was 300 years ago, because it's every other generation, there were only six women who had, who had these papers in their possession um, between Mercedes, the, the first woman, and, and um, Rachel. So it wasn't 30 people that had to keep a secret. It was six. And even, even Rachel's mother, Helen, um, whom you would think, well, you know, she's a modern woman, but she was born around, you know, 19, I don't remember, 1919 or so. So she would have still thought that an oath was important. And she also says, if I told, it would somehow diminish the fact that all those other women ha- were able to keep the secret. And it, it's, she feels like she would be betraying them also if she told the secret. And the other branch of the family that doesn't keep the secret um, I think it can be because the source from which they got the papers, who was a twin of the of the woman that that handed them down to Rachel's branch of the family, had never made that promise because she had not gotten the papers from her grandmother. She had gotten them from her twin sister, who never had asked her to promise to not not spread the the news about the papers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that I think um, that's why. And also, you know, there's just. People are different. <laughs> People are different. Um, you mentioned Mercedes. What was her motivation? What It was so um, unlike somebody who wanted to be a nun. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, it, you know, being a nun, uh, as we see even nowadays, um, different clergy and different religions, some of them seem to be the personification of the best things of that religion, and some of them don't. And I think that... Well put. <laughs> and I think that um, for Mercedes, it, it wasn't so much the, uh, perhaps, you know, the, the love of God and the, you know, living by the precept of do one to others. It was more that she she liked the atmosphere of the convent and it was all that she had known her whole mm-hmm. life it, and it wasn't her choice to be there but that's where she was and she had grown used to the life and had um was happy there and had decided that that was where she should be and she feels very betrayed by her mother who now all of a sudden is telling her all these horrible secrets one i'm your mother two you Mm-hmm. Or not the product of marriage. <laughs> Three, I am Guess Jewish. What? <laughs> so um, she's she's to Mercedes. These are shameful truths that she does not want people to know about her, and she she's angry with her mother because her mother tells her you must leave the convent, and Mercedes must obey because it's her mother and it's also her superior at the convent. So and and if and if she rebelled, then the truth would come out, and they might both get kicked out anyway. So she does what she has to do, but it's her revenge. It's a combination of her not wanting to share these two secrets, which to her are very shameful, and also revenge on her mother, who said pass these papers down. So the way that she does it is. She she does pass them down, but in a way that will will not broadcast the papers as 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 widely as as Juliana would have hoped. 
there is so much more to talk about, but I, I'm afraid I'm going to give away a, a, a secret. And this is all about, <laughs> your book is about people, people not giving away secrets. So, so I'm just, everybody's going to have to read it to find out what happens. So um, Rebecca, I'm just going to ask you, this, it was a gr- wonderful first novel that took you, you 25 years. What are you working on next? <laughs> um, now I'm working on another novel set in the 17th century also. And um, hopefully it will not take me 25 years. Uh, okay. And I've been working on the research. I've started a little bit of the writing. I had decided that I wanted to do something about a woman who was doing something unusual. And I've always been fascinated by old maps. So I thought, well, you know, here I am, 17th century Spain. Surely that was the center of cartography with all the, you know, exploration in the new world. Okay, great. Well, once I started looking into it, I decided that I, I discovered that actually the center for cartography in that time period was Amsterdam because of the mm. Dutch East Indies and the Dutch West Indies um, companies. So the, the this book will now take place almost exactly the same time period, around 1660, but in Amsterdam. And it's about a woman who is involved in... Um, the production of what was the largest uh, print series of books in in this during the century throughout Europe called the Atlas Mayor, and it was an enormous nine-volume series of maps. And I think that the title of the book will be The Map Colorist because she gets mm. her start by, of course, the maps would be engraved and then printed, and then they would be individually hand-colored, often by women and children in their own homes. So that's that's where we're going. <laughs> wow. And then you can tie it to the lines between us because many of the Jews who escaped the Inquisition mm-hmm. <laughs> left Spain in 1492 went in that direction. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> and there's much more tolerance there. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much. This was so lovely talking to you. And I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thanks very luck. much to you, Galit. Thank you. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Rebecca DeHarling about her novel, The Lines Between Us. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading. Happy reading.